Hello, welcome back to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Todd Norwood here with Jason Hammond. Hi, how's it going? So I heard, Jason, that you're actually just going to sit here and quiz me today and see how smart I might be or might not be. Uh, a little bit. So I have a book that I found at a used bookstore. So the, the backstory on this is I went to LA for uh, during the holiday break and uh, I went. I found myself in this used bookstore and I was looking around, just sort of wasting some time. I think I think we we're waiting for a food reservation, but um, I found a book on. So I, I'm a hobby chess player, and I found a modern chess openings book. And guess when it was written? 1962. 1956. And, you know, my brain is not so modern chess openings anymore. (laughs) Um, But the other book that I found was a bicycling science book. And this is actually an MIT Press book. So it's no joke. But it was published in 1982. So um, a spring peach compared to my other book that I purchased. So um, they have a cool chapter on human power generation, which is what we're going to talk about. And it gives some nice, uh, it's it's mostly white papers. So they have a big, they have like two pages of um, resources at the end of the the papers they referenced. But it's really nice because these are some questions that are answered that maybe you don't have the question yet. But we're going to talk about some of the things that, you know, like elliptical chain rings, uh, crank arm lengths, and um, all these different things that are involved with the human body's ability to produce power on the bike. So um, if we jump in, the, the chapter starts with talking about uh, how, how most experiments are done. And they're done on an ergometer, which is uh, just basically a, something that looks like a bike, but it's connected to something that measures power. So, I mean, the modern ergometer is your smart trainer, basically. Yeah. So, but older ones would just be, um, they looked a little bit like the, the fitting systems that some people use where it's the, almost the handlebars are separate from the saddle and mm-hmm. you can sort of adjust them to the size and shape of the rider. And then the, the cranks will be connected to some measure measurement device. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the three reservations that the, the, um, chapter has are, the fact that people vary widely in performance. What's cool about the uh, the reservations are they're still very applicable today. Mm-hmm. So uh, people vary widely in performance, and unless a lot of people are tested, we can't extrapolate the information to all of humanity. Mm-hmm. So, and it's funny that a lot of the papers we've talked about are like twelve n of twelve, and uh, a few of these are actually like n of a hundred. So real. That's, um, that's pretty good for sports science. Yeah. Right. So some pretty good papers, but even imagine a hundred people think about how many different types of people and sizes and shapes and everything uh it is hard to to use information from and were they all like mit students that you know got conned into doing this for five bucks or like was part of their like i never remember undergraduate when i took my psychology class part of my credits was i had to do like five experiments yeah so no actually one of them one of the big ones was actually from a japanese university um, so then even I, I assume that most of the um, the subjects were Japanese. So then that's already going to, mm-hmm. you know, now you can only extrapolate it really to the Japanese population. Another one was Dartmouth. I think they said Dartmouth staff, not even students. So uh, so now it, we can only extrapolate it to Ivy League professors. <laughs> uh, so maybe, I mean, okay, so this is the balance, right, with scientific papers is um, – yeah, we can't really get an, an indication of the entire human population, but we're trying to do our best. Mm-hmm. And so you have to understand you can't extrapolate it, but... Well, and then sometimes the question is, do you want to extrapolate it, right? Like if you want to know, does X influence performance in elite cyclists, you don't want to test college students. You want to test elite cyclists to answer that question. So you know, I think for some things like population health measures, you know, does walking 30 minutes a day influence blood pressure and diabetes risk? You want to look at the whole population. And for specific questions, you want a subset, right? How do, how do, how do you know how to make Chris Froome faster? Well, you know, probably I'll look at Chris Froome because what works for him may not work for you or the next person. Yep, that's a very good point. So the next point is uh, ergometers. They generally feel strange. So think how the smart trainer doesn't really feel like a proper bike. You can... The, the resistance is a bit weird and they say it's supposed to simulate, 
you know, real world riding. And it just feels a little bit off and that can really affect your power numbers if you're mm-hmm. doing some sort of maximal effort. And especially back in the day, it was even harder to try and get uh, something that tried to simulate, you know, real world riding. Yeah. And I think the modern smart trainers have come a, a long way uh, as far as how they do it. I, I do think there's still some some funkiness of it, just indoor trainers in general, the way they respond to certain certain impulses. It's not representative of what happens when you're outside. Yeah. And well, at, at, from with a controls background, it makes it's really hard for a, a control algorithm to adapt to really quick impulses mm-hmm. and things like that. So it's definitely a challenge that they have to think in a new way to, to try and solve it. But um, I mean, I think it's fine for its use, the smart trainers. Mm-hmm. But the the point is to realize that you can't even extrapolate the true power numbers from this data because the, the values themselves aren't that useful. It's really about the relative powers mm-hmm. with the changes. So, yeah. um, and that's even true nowadays is don't, don't focus too much on the raw numbers, focus on the trends and the, the general ideas. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, those you're looking at, did this intervention or did this thing change relative to the power that was recorded, right? If you went to the lab and use an ergometer and record your FTP and it was 3% lower than you used to, that may well just be the equipment, right? And the setup and have nothing to do with your true FTP changing. Yep. And so the the next point is that uh, most of the energy of riding a bike goes into air friction. That's our mm-hmm. usually our biggest limiter, especially anything over 14 miles an hour. It's going to mm-hmm. be mostly uh, air friction. And the heat transfer associated with that air friction is actually beneficial to the rider. And it's really uncommon for a study to actually uh, simulate the airflow that you would get. So normally subjects are generally going to overheat and their limiter is their ability to buffer the increases in body heat rather than, you know, their aerobic capacity or something like that. That makes sense to me. I'm not going to go too far down my, my personal theory, but I have this theory about why I do better at mountain bike races being a tall person, which is exactly it. The speeds are seldom exceeding 14 miles an hour or so. Mm. And probably being um, when you're leaner, you have more uh, skin surface area to body mass. And so that can also help with dissipating heat. So, And and you mentioned you might do sauna stuff and that'll help even more. But your your end race weight might be a lot lower uh, if you increase your sweat rate. So the, the last thing they want to make about the, exp- the, the, the last point they want to make about the experiments are even if you use a sensor on a real bike, which is coming more into favor now, um, the sensors in some way will probably affect the, the capacity of the rider, whether mm-hmm. you try and measure their airflow, you'll have, they'll have a mask on. Um, if you have some sort of measurement device that, you know, attaches to them, then now they have a weight on their back or there's always going to be something that makes it not a pure, effort and there is a really popular trend of moving to you know let's just use a power meter on a real cyclist but if you want more accurate and more specific um, controlled yeah if you you want those things you 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 have to trade off with the fact that it's not an exact simulation of the performance at hand well and that's the principle often cited from physics right about if you observe it it's not what you know. You change the observation. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's it's base. It's the, the uncertainty principle. The yeah. cycling version of the uncertainty principle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, another note is that human leg power varies throughout the pedal stroke, and this is something that uh, I think the power meter companies tend to want to kind of hide. Uh, but your Garmin or whatever computer you're using usually only pulls at once per second, and that's because it, the um, the wireless frequency that it uses is not really great at a lot of transfer of data. So you'll have some sort of power averaging in your power meter. Mm-hmm. So the the paper mentions that you could have uh, power as high as 700 watts and as low as 150 watts throughout the pedal stroke. This is for, say, a threshold effort. Mm-hmm. You would have this really high peak, and then you maybe you're at 6 o'clock, you would have a really low wattage. And your power meter will actually take i think srm claims 2500 samples a second Mm -hmm. and so they'll average those 2500 and then send you the average and but realize that if your if your cadence is over 60 rpm like say it's 90 rpm you you could have more than one peak in your power for a given second interval Mm -hmm. so a one second power 
could just be the perfect window of peak power between, uh, you know, two cyclic peaks. Mm -hmm. And you could have your one second instantaneous power could be, you know, really high because you're getting two high high parts and only one trough. Mm -hmm. And same with two seconds, three seconds, you can still get, you know, four peaks in a three second window. And just depending on the way the cadence matches up with the polling rate, you have to be careful with shorter efforts and the results that you get from them because of this averaging. So I I don't like people's one second peak power numbers. It's like, ah, you hit the right window, you know? Yep. And so it's really, that's why five seconds, that's sort of considered the, the starting point for looking at power is because five seconds, really the averaging starts to work out a bit better. Yeah. You've got enough sample that you can throw out the outliers. Yeah. Or they, they get um, negated or. Yeah. They get flattened out, out a yeah. bit more. Yeah. So the, you know, next it talks about um, three main energy systems and create, you know, creatine phosphate, anaerobic and aerobic energy systems. And um, here's the, a fun fact that they mention is actually that type one fibers are like those found in dark meat in chicken or turkey. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I didn't know this in advance of reading this, but um, type two is actually the light meat, the, mm-hmm. the low fat. Uh, so the, the really powerful animals w- will generally have tougher uh, meat and it's because there's low lower fat and there's mm-hmm. higher type two fiber types and then um, this endurance type is actually you know really fatty and um, has a different composition well rel- yeah relatively speaking yes yeah I, yeah for you know an animal like i remember you know like if you if you go deer hunting deer are actually really lean even though mm-hmm. they're a lot of type one mm-hmm. and uh, it's just because animals in nature are actually really lean because they're busy surviving so (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah i thought that might be uh next time you're eating your turkey leg you know you can think of your type one fibers that are going in and there's a there's a reason for that and i'm it's slipping my mind right now but it had like why the color is different and i want to say it has to do with um a protein called myoglobin which is dark it's like a dark brown color, okay. Um, and which has to do with uh, has to do with the aerobic process, and that's found in a higher concentration of type one fibers. I may be completely wrong, but I'm, like my memory may be um, letting me down here. But I, I believe that's the reason that it's dark versus, and that's not present in type two fibers, which the, that's why those hmm. are white. The, the the thing that I thought was interesting about the type one versus type two is the um you know dark meat is usually considered fattier and it's interesting that these endurance fibers are they're more in the presence of fat because of the utilization of it Mm -hmm. or you know there's some relationship there of the utilization of the fat and the presence of it in the fibers and we talked about this a little bit about intramuscular fat being Mm -hmm. used as a fuel source and it's clearly more present in these types of fibers yep uh form follows function yep Um, so the next, uh, topic was, uh, human muscle power production. So it's about 25% efficient. So 75% of the energy is dissipated as heat. This was, uh, we, we talked about this with the air resistance. You, it really shows how much for every watt that you put in the bike, you got to figure out how to get rid of three of them out, out of your skin or your breathing or something. Yeah. And this is, uh, actually very similar to an automobile or another, engine so they had some thermodynamics equations that i i had definitely seen them before in undergrad um but i thought it might be a bit boring to present but the idea behind it is basically there are efficiency limits on engines and the ability to use energy efficiently and actually we as humans closely approximate a lot of the efficient engines that we have in in real life and Mm -hmm. one way that we diverge is we don't have the way that we use fuel is different. Like, you know, an automobile would have gasoline come in and mm-hmm. you combust the gasoline to produce heat and then you use the heat to produce forward motion. And instead we have an extra pathway where the the food as fuel goes into muscles, which then produce the power. And it's similar, but it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's different is we actually have a lot more oxygen. We need to take in a lot more oxygen over what is used. So I believe the paper referenced 380% more oxygen than what's used. And I don't remember exactly why, but, um, you know, an automobile would be 10% more oxygen 
comes in than uh, is used mm-hmm. and for humans it's it's a really high number so well so some of that has to do with our physiology and there's a term called physiologic dead space which is in your lungs you don't actually exchange everything so when you breathe in and breathe out you're there's a certain amount that's just dead space that doesn't actually exchange so hmm. that's a certain fixed amount of volume of any every breath in every breath out that you're actually not getting that oxygen you're not able to use that so that's that's some of it hmm. so uh another fun fact that i have on top of the uh, type 1 type 2 fibers is um this 0.1 horsepower or 75 watts is considered what an average fit man or woman could work for several hours without suffering fatigue. So this is a normal average, you know, human. And uh, this is 75 watts is what you should be able to do with reasonably rapid recovery. Mm-hmm. And this is actually what the recommended work rate for mine, you know, workers who work in mines. Um, and I think this came from a UK study because, you know, this like coal mining was a a popular industry uh, back when cycling was first started. And so they were trying to equate cycling work to work work. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting that they could find, you know, a number of watts per hour that you uh, could produce or not watts per hour. Cause it's uh, watts is already in time, but you know, the amount of watts that you produce is directly correlated with uh, how much work you can do. And I'm pretty sure that's also how horsepower was derived. It was a unit of how much, power a horse could produce in a unit time hmm. it's like a typical horse doing i want to say it was also mining it was it it was not it was like a mechanical system that you know a horse was pulling and that's how they came up with horsepower which is uh i believe officially is 747 watts yeah it's right it's right yeah. about 750 yep. and um also that 75 watts corresponds to about 12 miles per hour on a touring bicycle so that's where they got the budget for if you're doing like a, a European tour on your bike, they'll say 12 miles per hour. And, and, and that's because of this 25 watt they expect, you know, a normal sedentary tourist. And so I think that's also uh, about what Google Maps calculates. If you like plot something on a using the bike feature, mm-hmm. I, I want to say. It, Is that why it takes forever to get anywhere with the bike feature? uh yeah like if you're if you're trying to like map out and you're like oh i want to ride to this place and it's you know you look at it, it's like three and a half hours you're like no i can ride faster than that i i think it is about that pace that it estimates yeah so it's just weird how they they all sort of connect together i'm reading through it like wait a second so um another interesting paper that they brought up was breathing effectiveness this is milliliters per second so how much oxygen it's just oxygen capacity and um, it they noticed that it decreased with age and they claimed that 20 was the peak, although I think more recent papers are actually claiming 28 is the peak. Uh, but they found that it was pretty flat up until 40. And then between 40 and 80, there's a, a linear decrease down to at 80. It's about half of 40. Well, that's with lay population, correct? That is with amateur time trialists. Okay. Yeah, so they there was actually a forty-one-year-old who did better than a bunch of uh, twenty to thirty-year-olds, and so that was the data point that made it flat. And then um, it showed a bunch of fifty and sixty-year-old riders who had a a pretty linear decrease mm-hmm. over time. And um, another, I, this is also kind of a random fun fact: is zero point six seven milliliters per second. Which I'm sorry, that's not a more useful value for you but um that is actually the threshold at which most people start to breathe through their mouth so they have a study on the amount of oxygen that you use when you start to mouth breathe instead of nose breathe so that's milliliters of oxygen yeah so that's like oh wow that's really small it's like a quarter teaspoon or something yeah Not per even, second it's a, well and it's that's a, the oxygen yeah. which is only 20 percent of the air right. so the total air would be more so be, yeah so like the total air would get close to a teaspoon volume. Interesting. Yeah. And so it and it's kind of I'm reading through this and they're like, we have a white paper on how much uh, how much air you breathe before you start opening your mouth to breathe. So they've really explored a lot of areas of cycling. And it's funny that we don't really they're not in the public conscience mm-hmm. as much as maybe they could be. Or maybe they don't need to be because they're uh, kind of not I mean, just fun facts. You should be breathing, right? Like That should be 
And what were you going to change about that? I don't know. I guess that's where you, um, the, the white paper that supports like the breathe right strips or something. Yeah, I guess. Or, um, and that's the other thing. Some people talk about controlling your breathing and, uh, I believe it's generally considered that you just let, you just let yourself breathe and you let your, uh, your subconscious figure out the right pattern and everything. So let's move on to maybe a little more focused white paper uh, stuff by the chapter. And so the, ne- the next topic is effects of pedaling rate. So now this study, the riders actually used their own bicycle, but they actually developed maximal power output in the 40 to 50 RPM range for the same for like a given amount of time. So I think they only tested um, 30, 40, 50, up to 80. Mm hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a very clear curve where the 40 to 50 range is significantly higher than the 30 or the 80. And, um, I think that's interesting and definitely divergent from the current thinking, which is, you know, everyone says 90 to hundred right now. And mm-hmm. to have a white paper that says, well, we actually got maximal power at 40 to 50. I think that's interesting. It would be interesting to think about how well-trained this cyclist is Mm -hmm. or the cyclists that they used, because I think that if you don't have a good pedal stroke, the lower cadence could give you more time under load, which Mm -hmm. would give you more power. But if you have good uh, pedal mechanics, then you might have the ability to have the same time under load for a higher cadence. Well, and I think there's a separate question there how reproducible and if we asked you to do it for 10 seconds that's great but if you're super fatigued after doing 10 seconds at 40 rpms then that's not terribly useful strategy Uh, whereas maybe a higher cadence allows better recovery and thus is more sustainable so you know i think there's certainly um considerations for like well what's the long-term implication for that like yeah, I'm sure track cyclists in a standing start produce a ton of power when they hit 30 to 40 RPMs, right? But, yeah. but not, they do that three times in a workout. Right. You know? They're not sustaining it for very long. And uh, actually, the, the next note I have is that uh, a similar study found that 60 RPM to be the most efficient, but the riders generally complained of leg strain at mm-hmm. the end of the effort. So you may have really good power at 60 RPMs, but you have to consider if you're racing bikes or if you're trying to ride with your friends, how reproducible is that? If you're doing one effort, sure, it sounds like it's the most efficient. But if you have to do 10 efforts, that's something that hasn't been studied and is likely not uh, reproducible. You mm-hmm. probably won't have 60 RPM as your maximal power on the 10th interval. Well, and we, you know, I think we talked about this with weightlifting a little bit. It's one thing you can lift a really heavy weight three times. Right. But can you lift a really heavy weight 10 times? And then in the case of cycling, well, if you, well, if you have to do it 10,000 times, uh, lighter weight's probably going to do better. And in this case, a lighter weight equates to a higher cadence. Yeah. And so we're, we're actually going to talk about that in a second about the relationship between, um, torque and cadence for a given power. So before that though, uh, there was a British 25 mile TT where they, um, they looked at non-championship level athletes, so uh, club riders, mm-hmm. and they there was a category where riders were restricted to 70-inch gears. And so I want to say when I was on the track, 100-inch was normal for like the pro race. Mm-hmm. So 70 inches is uh, significantly smaller. Mm-hmm. And actually, those riders who were restricted versus those unrestricted only had a few percentage points lower times than those with unrestricted gears. So the, the riders on a lower gear... Uh, bike would have to ride at a higher cadence and they were only a little bit slower. So the general consensus is we don't really know if cadence has that much of a contribution to your performance. Yeah, right. Because presumably you'd be fastest at a self-selected cadence. In this case, they were forced to do something outside their desired. I mean, I don't know, maybe Mm -hmm. for some people it was like what they were going to do anyhow, but generally speaking, probably outside of their self-selected cadence. Yeah. And for them to only be a few percentage points, I mean, mm-hmm. that could even just be them not being used to the high cadence. Yep. Um, so what's interesting is uh, the one theory as to why very low pedaling rates have a higher muscle efficiency is because a higher cadence forces applied downwards still at the six o'clock point. So that energy of pushing down when you're at six o'clock just goes into pushing the body upwards. Mm-hmm. And there was a apparently I actually have never heard of this writer, but A.A. A. Zimmerman was a, a famous American sprinter 
who claimed that you shouldn't do full leg thrusts. And this is, I mean, in the 1890s is when this guy was around. Okay. So uh, early, uh, early cycling. I mean, the other famous American sprinter from that era is uh, Major Taylor. Yeah. And well, he was a bit older, right? Yeah. Or a bit early, uh, later. later. A little bit later. Yeah. In yeah, 1900s. And um, what I think is really interesting is although he's um, really early on in the industry, he mentions that you should really only focus on the top half of the power phase. And you will have the momentum of the leg power through the bottom. But what it does is it allows you, he didn't say this specifically, but it allows you to decelerate at five o'clock so that you're not still pushing down at six. Yeah. Yeah. You, you ignore that or you avoid the negative force by stopping your downforce earlier and only focusing on the top half of the power Mm -hmm. phase. So there, there is some validity to what he says, but, um, I I think that pedaling and pedal efficiency is maybe a little more complicated than how he summarized it. Yeah, he didn't have all the tools to measure it though, so that's a pretty good insight given you know all single speed bikes and no power meters or <laughs> heart rate monitors or anything else to speak of. Yeah, it's it's cool that he was just intuitively understanding of his bike enough mm-hmm. to say I think this makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so the last thing that the chapter has on cadence is that the in general having a larger gear will be advantageous, especially for time trial like efforts. Um, if if you you won't get a decrease in performance generally for um, lower cadence for a single effort, uh, and that there's an indication that maybe professional level riders may have an advantage with this larger uh, gear set. So. I noticed that there was like Tony Martin has used like a 58 tooth chain ring mm-hmm. in the past and that could, he could be leaning into these studies. Maybe he found this book in a used bookstore and uh, a German s- copy. Yeah. And, and found the uh, found a way to experiment with higher gears. So uh, I think that if you are a high cadence rider, don't be afraid of it. Um, you can use it. I think that in contrast to the high cadence riding, you have to, um, you have to produce more torque for a given um, output. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was one chart that's for 280 watts, which is about threshold for a lot of us. If you're riding at 135 RPM, you're only doing 20 Newton meters of torque at the pedal. And if you're doing 75 RPM, you're doing 40 Newton meters of torque. So the difference between 75 cadence and 135 cadence is double the torque at the pedal. So understanding that your cadence affects how much uh, you know force. force you have to produce, you have to find the right balance for yourself. It can be hard for some people to have a high cadence, but if you're always if your muscles are always feeling fried, you might need to look into getting a higher cadence so you can take that force off a little bit and rely more on your aerobic system. I think the biggest thing is you know when that book was written, they didn't well they had five sprockets in the back maybe getting to six yeah so they know the range like now you just throw on a different cassette right or comp like compact gearing was 30 years away from that i mean not 30 25 uh so yeah and we have so many options now to adapt right we don't like it's not like oh we'll just work on it like no you can just swap out a gear and you're good to go yeah i you know nowadays you could stay at 90 forever yeah, more uh, or less. Back then, though, you know, when you were descending, you'd have to go up to 135. And when you were climbing, you'd have to go to 75. Mm-hmm. And so we're m- maybe a bit spoiled now. Um, but I think it's really important to think about this idea of how much force your muscles are producing. And, you know, if, if you if you generally are the type to do a few heavy squats as opposed to a lot of light squats, um, it might be advantageous for you to try and you know, make the spread the force out a bit more so that your legs last longer. If that's an issue for you. Okay. The next is uh, saddle height. So this is uh, less lengthy than the pedal cadence. I, I, it's so interesting that um, they, they seem to have a lot of papers on cadence and mm-hmm. it seems like they were relatively undecided on the effects of cadence. And I think even now we're pretty undecided. There are people who say, Oh, you got to be a hundred cadence. And there are people who say, ah, just ride it, whatever you want. And, um, people seem, I mean, I've seen a wide variety of riders who are successful at all types of mm-hmm. cadences. 
I mean, I think there, you know, there's advantages to each. There's, you know, individual preference that goes along with that. But again, we have the beauty if we pay attention of the technology so we can observe changes within ourselves, right? Like you can observe what your heart rate does if you ride at a fixed wattage, you know, and, and different cadences and say, okay, well, presumably my body is under less load if I drop the cadence down or raise it up a little bit and start to intuit maybe what's better for you based on some data. So if we look at saddle height, um, one study suggested that more power was obtained when the saddle was raised by 40 or 50 millimeters above the normal height, but minimum calorie consumption was found at the saddle at a saddle level 40 millimeters below the normal height. How are we defining normal? So normal was just what the, what the person showed up. Yeah, with. the the selected uh, saddle height. So if you raise your saddle, you, you can get more power out. But mm-hmm. if you lower your saddle, you'll be more calorically efficient. I've, I feel like I've seen similar, more recent uh, papers you know, reflecting like maximum anaerobic power goes up as you raise the seat. Um, it's like, okay, well, if you do short races or crits, maybe that makes sense. And right? actually, I had a, a master's track rider tell me this, that when he started doing track, his, co- his coach said, yeah, raise your seat up three inches. And he was like, what? And he was like, okay, not three inches, but like, you know, a fair a amount. A good amount, yeah. Yeah. And, and actually the um, the reason for that is because it's, you know, he's doing very anaerobic efforts and it's really just about the quad engagement, mm-hmm. that the three o'clock position and how much force you can produce there for these shorter efforts. Mm-hmm. And then it's interesting, this is completely opposite to like a Tour de France rider. They have the most conservative positions ever. Uh, if you look at, you know, some Tour de France riders, their handlebars are above their saddle. I mean, uh, especially some of the climbers, because the efficiency, the value of the efficiency of uh, having like a low seat, low seat height. And uh, especially you know, in a three week race. Yeah. I mean, you cannot get any lower back pain any day, you know, or anything. Unless you're Adam Hansen and you have a crazy setup. But yeah, he's a special, special case. He's a bit wacky with his uh, a unique, ideas. Unique setup. Yeah. Yeah. So another, this is our 100 subject test. Um, it found that maximal power output was obtained with a saddle height set at 10% greater than the leg length. Okay. I feel like I've read a similar, or like that's, that's like one of the common equations, right? For setting up your bike. It's a, and so I think it was 107% of inseam, 109% inseam. Yeah. Well, this, this is 110. Yep. Yeah. So, so um, they there the math seems to indicate that we know what the saddle height should be just mm-hmm. based on your inseam measurement and that's 100 people so that that was the one that's uh on pretty good uh but maybe only applicable to to japanese, japanese bike people riders. yeah so let's look at crank length now so um, the biggest limit on crank length that they mentioned was actually uh your crank scraping the ground on a normal bicycle so, and that's because they explored really long cranks. So, one study was 140, uh-huh. 170, and 220. Yes, I think I've read this study. Yeah, and um, so, of course, if we put 220 millimeter cranks on our bikes, um, would they even sit on the wheels or would they just sit on that crank arm? I think, I don't know, I think it might clear the ground, but I don't know that. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to turn your bike at all. That's really the problem. Yeah, scraping I mean, it. Oh, yeah, point. the toe overlap would be brutal. Yeah, that as well. Yeah. So, um, it, so the the biggest problem with studying this is you can't just take a rider on their bike and uh, give them new crank arms. You actually have to manufacture a new frame to accommodate the longer crank arms. So there's a lot less research on crank length relative to something like cadence, which mm-hmm. is really easy for you to get subjects for. So. Uh, one rider found that there was a 9% increase in power at 160 millimeters versus 220. And um, they one speculation and kind of a dismissal of this paper was that it was because they were more used to the 160 millimeter cranks mm-hmm. because their original crank length was 170. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's crank length. The difficulty with a lot of these studies is the familiarity with the riders to their preferred value. Mm-hmm. So it's this is just like the ergometer it's you have like a few minutes to warm up and learn how it works you're gonna produce funky power numbers so so i feel like there's someone else replicated this paper more recently Uh, i want to say at the university of utah 
and they only look at sprint power in that study. And if I can recall correctly, their conclusion was that it there was no difference. Now, again, like there's probably some challenges of you know like adapting and like well, one forty is really weird, two twenty is really weird. So yeah, you probably don't make really good power at either of those. So I think it'd be interesting to like I don't know have people train on it for a week or something and come back and then do it and that. I think what's also interesting is the ability for something to be statistic statistically significant is really tough when your sample size is low. Mm-hmm. So if you are if you do have to build a custom bike or even custom crank sets for each of these riders, then you give them a week to train on it or a month. Preferably, it'd be like a month, but. Um, gets you really know, expensive yeah a hundred of these to get a good sample size it starts to become really unrealistic and it's weird how crank length has almost become well that's what the industry says so it's going to be be the most efficient because that's what everyone's used to more mm-hmm. than there's some sort of biomechanical or physiological reason for this crank it's just that's what the industry says and that's what everyone's used to so that's the way it is right like you you ride this size well you get this crank congratulations right like you're you know, you're the brand new owner of a 172 and a half. Yeah. And actually the, um, the only other thing the paper noted was, um, one study that mentioned that riders could select between seven or eight inch cranks after riding both. And all five riders selected the longer cranks in terms of which ones would you prefer Mm -hmm. Uh, that sort of question, which is not really a great study, but, uh, there's this idea that people might prefer longer cranks just from a comfort standpoint. So seven or eight, that's like roughly one. So 177 one, and 203. Yeah. Yeah. So, so those are long, even longer than what most yeah, people so typically ride. Do you want long cranks or really, really long, long cranks? Yeah. So, uh, but it seems that there is a certain preference when you ride, you, you almost feel it feels good to mm-hmm. have these cranks for some reason. And they also noted that Eddie Merckx used 175 cranks on the track for his hour record and 180 cranks for time trials and hill climbs. Mm-hmm. So uh, at least one person. We know Eddie Merckx is, was a big saddle saddle height changer, and he would always stop in the middle of rides to adjust his bike. So he was always finicky with that stuff. He was also very fast. So um, there, you know, there's some anecdotal ideas about longer crank arms potentially being helpful, but... Uh, the summary from the books was basically there doesn't seem to be a major contribution to your performance from the length of your crank arms. And you could have an advantage of a longer than normal crank, but, but you'd have to make sure that your gear ratio matches so mm-hmm. that your pedal speed is the same. And so if you have long crank arms and you have the same gears, your pedal speed decreases. Correct. So you have to lower the so, yeah, gears. It's a relatively heavier gear. Yeah. And so um, you, if, if you are interested in experimenting with longer gears, I mean, Nairo Quintana is really small and he uses 175s. I know that. And there are a few other climbers who have bought into this longer cranks are better. And, you know, what is five millimeters when it, when, you know, a 170 versus a 175, like what percent increase in length and how does that turn into more, you know, a greater moment at the crank arm? I'm not so convinced that it really makes much of a difference. There's probably better ways to eke out some performance. Um, but if you don't have a problem with longer cranks, it seems like there's not a detriment. And if, you, if you're if you someone like Naira Quintana and you have access to all of these cranks, let's just put the long one on and see what happens. And if it's comfy, keep it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly fit constraints and that's a whole other discussion of like why you might want to fit one way versus another. Um, and mainly, I think, looking at you know, hip mobility and then, you know, relative height of saddle to handlebar may sway you towards shorter cranks versus longer and sometimes mm-hmm. longer cranks because the the top of the crank, the, the top point, 12 o'clock, relatively speaking for a, um, a longer crank, two things happen. If you assume that your leg extension is the same, if you make your crank five millimeters longer, relatively speaking, you need to have not just five millimeters, but actually like 10 millimeters because theoretically you lowered your seat five millimeters and the crank is five millimeters higher at the top. So there's there's a 10 millimeter increase need for hip mobility. And if you don't have that, then sometimes a shorter crank can work better. So like if you have a time trial position where you got to be really low and that's going to put a demand on your, uh, your hip mobility, 
then sometimes you'll see folks run like even like 165s, 160s. Uh, I think it's really popular in Ironman now. Like folks will run like 150s or 140s even. Whoa. And you, you have to get this custom made as well. Right? Uh, there's, there's a few like triathlon specific vendors that make those super short cranks. Okay. And what's interesting is the, um, there's this idea with fits about the, are we constraining the bikes too much with our fits? Like you said, the, if we're using a 170 crank, we assume a certain amount of mobility with the athlete such that the downstroke isn't, their knee isn't too extended on the downstroke, but also that their hip can accommodate the top of the pedal stroke. Mm -hmm. And so for what, by the industry picking 170 millimeters or 175, whatever the standard is, they're they're assuming something about the mobility of the athletes, and it might not be an accurate assumption mm -hmm. for everyone. So the last thing we're going to talk about is elliptical chain rings, and it's funny that this uh, this book in 1982 was already talking about elliptical chain rings and. Well, I know it's the original era of Shimano Biopace, right? Like the original. I don't know, Todd. I don't know if I'm old enough to uh, to know what you're talking about. That was one of the original efforts at an elliptical chain ring. So okay, so um, the I remember the I don't even remember the brand anymore. But when I first started riding in 2011, there there was a big drive by Team Sky, who was doing elliptical chain rings. Oh, symmetric. Yeah. And uh, Bradley Wiggins was like a big mm -hmm. uh, fan of them. And um, they've fallen out of fashion since. And I think that's how the trend with elliptical oh, training. Not, not in mountain biking. They're still going in mountain biking? Mm -hmm. Very popular. Can the derailleur handle it? Yeah, it, it, it waves a little bit. Okay. Uh, but right, mountain biking is all primarily single ring now. Oh. So it doesn't have to shift. Like there's no front trailer shifting and the rear trailer yeah. just has a little waggle. And so you can have like a big, um, a big chain holder, right. To prevent it from flopping off at any point. Um, yeah, they actually do one better. Like the rings machined in a way that provides tension and the trailer has a clutch that oh. gives it some retention. Hmm. So I guess I'm not really in the know, but I always stuck with the circular chain ring. So this is not really my forte anyway, but you'll be happy to know that well let's talk okay i'm actually jumping ahead the goal of elliptical chain rings is actually to reduce the amount of the supposed useless time at the mm -hmm. top and bottom of the pedal stroke and the idea is for a larger portion of the circle you can provide force with your primary muscles mm -hmm. and um this the i so one thing to note about this phenomenon is that there are some questions about the validity of power meter values mm -hmm. on non-circular chain rings mm -hmm. because there are some assumptions about the values derived from a power meter because a power meter is just a force gauge. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, you know, the force is produced at a certain distance. And if that distance changes, you might not get the, the correct power meter values. Well, that would be true of a crank-based power meter, right? Yes. But if you have a hub based yep. or some, somewhere else then that would be accurate yeah so representative at least you would have to be careful with uh the studies that say performance benefits came from elliptical chain rings to see where they pulled their their power meter from mm -hmm. their power meter data so um you have to yeah there's some funky business with some of the data i i believe that elliptical chain rings produce higher values on crank based power meters mm -hmm. and so if if someone installs an elliptical chain ring on their crankbase power meter, they go. Great sales tool. <laughs> wow, I, I gained twenty watts on my threshold. It's like no, actually, your power meter just calculates it incorrectly. Yeah, now. you can't calculate it. Yeah, so um, it seemed like the major benefit of low, of elliptical chain rings is low speed, high torque pedaling, mm -hmm. and I believe the reason for this is because you you can really get stuck in that dead spot when you have high torque low cadence mm -hmm. and so the the benefit the uh, the advantage of the elliptical chain rings is maximized in that scenario mm -hmm. and this is why it's popular mountain biking and it's i mean even the marketing now is is pushing less on the like peak power increased threshold physiologic efficiency but actually pushing more for traction right because in in a situation where you're going slow you have low cadence high torque demand you don't want to have the power spike because it's going to break the rear wheel loose. You want to have the power delivery to be pretty smooth. So they almost, they really get 
pushed more as like a traction advantage. Like, okay, well, you know, you're not going to have this like spiky torque uh, when you need to maintain traction, you'll be able to like deliver the torque smoothly to the rear wheel and that'll actually help you maintain traction rather than necessarily make you more efficient. But, hmm. you know, as a byproduct of maintaining traction, then you stay on your bike, which makes you faster. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think that another thing to think about, though, is and, and I would almost say this is your argument, Todd, is um if you have the core strength and you have the muscle function to regulate your own torque correctly, mm -hmm. this is almost a non-issue. And I think that's something that the reason elliptical chain rings are successful with some people is because it's likely because their bodies aren't correctly functioning. Mm -hmm. and that, that's my interpretation of it. And if you have you know, good glute engagement, good quad engagement, your hamstrings are functioning on the backside, like your hip flexors work you you can control your foot throughout the entire pedal stroke mm -hmm. and this dead spot is almost a non-issue but it's for people who and this was me you know not too long ago i was quad only and i i had crazy uh, peak and trough uh, power values mm -hmm. and it was because you know one o'clock to four o'clock was my bread and butter but otherwise i wasn't producing much power and for a rider like me back then, I probably would have benefited from elliptical chain rings. So do you want to fix yourself or just change the bike to meet you? So for what it's worth, when I raced Leadville a few years ago, I actually raced it on elliptical chain rings uh, with, with the rationale. like, it's so darn long. I'm going to be tired. And I, you know, I'm, I'm assuming if I'm going to be in the saddle for eight hours, I might, even if there's some marginal benefit to having that elliptical ring, it's probably going to be worthwhile and accumulate over eight hours. Who knows? Did it, did it matter? Couldn't tell you because I haven't raced it on the round chain ring. But uh, to me, that was, that was worth the, the cost and, or, you know, I, I, I read enough of the papers like, yeah, okay, this seems, this seems like it's a worthwhile investment given that I know there's going to be significant fatigue and just like neuromuscular fatigue. So that control and core strength probably ain't going to be there in hour seven and eight. Mm hmm. And that's a good point. If you are doing an effort where you may lose that um, neuromuscular function or, or capacity to really engage those muscles, you might find value. So the the way that the chapter finished off was it said high ovality, which they considered 1.2. So that's the difference mm -hmm. between the, the short and the long mm -hmm. parts of the um, ellipt elliptic uh, shape. Mm -hmm. High ovality over 1.2 decreases performance. Mm -hmm. And this was just like proven with multiple papers. Mm -hmm. So they said, don't touch anything over 1.2, but some oval chain rings in the range of about 1.1 mm -hmm. seem to increase some riders performance mm -hmm. and other riders found no effect, mm -hmm. but nobody found diminished performance. Yep. So, um, this is similar to crank arm length is a longer crank arm. Isn't going to make you slower, but you might not see improvement. Yep. So elliptical chain rings at about 1.1, they're not going to make you slower. But you might not right. see any improvement. Yep. And I think that's actually about the the range that most of the ones are, at least in the mountain bike market now, are in, in that ballpark of the 1.1. Mm -hmm. um, so makes sense. Like they did their research. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I would say for elliptical chain rings, it's interesting. I had one uh, friend who said that they used it and they actually stopped because they were getting so much quad fatigue. They almost had too much engagement of that mm -hmm. part of the pedal stroke. And I think with the osymmetric ones, you can change where the mm -hmm. longest torque position is. Yeah. And so maybe they messed up that adjustment or something. Um, it's also interesting, you know, with um, a road bike chain ring, they're much like a mountain bike chain ring. I run 32, 34, or maybe 34, sometimes a 30, depending on course situation. So... With a, a road bike chain rate, the smallest I have is a 30, 38, 39. So like just the one, 1 1.1 when you multiply out to 53 is a lot bigger difference. Yeah. And, and it really looks quite looks, oval. Yeah. Goofy. And yeah. And actually the move, the amount of motion in your derailleur is probably a lot higher as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. That's yeah, so. like, yeah. And so I, I guess this, uh, this episode was, uh, things you might not know that you needed to know about uh, human power and the way that you know some of the decisions that are made around the industry about you know bike design and crank length and 
chain rings and pedaling cadence. Uh, this gives you a little more insight and just good things to know. I think I've had these questions on my mind. I've, I've done personal research in these areas before, but I think everybody has a bit of a, is my cadence okay? You know, a, a bit of like self-doubt and mm-hmm. um, having some white papers to lean on and say, ah, yeah, it's probably fine. Yeah, I think that's that's always nice. Just have that little bit of reassurance that, oh, you know, that that's just going to work out okay. Yeah, and uh, I think that's really common with cyclists to have some self doubt with uh, with something. You mm-hmm. know, if 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 your bike riding's not going quite as the way you want it to, you look for something to change. And uh, having some white papers or having a published book that says maybe don't worry about this thing is a good way to refine the things that maybe you should be looking at. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Todd, quiz at the end. The, the trivia questions? Yeah. No, what actually, are they? Oh, I don't have Oh, you any. have questions for me? No, I don't. Oh, okay. Good. But uh, if you have any questions for me, I'm now an expert on this chapter. Um, I, there's actually so much material in this book. I'm sure there'll be more fun facts to share or um, other sections. There's a lot on the tech of like balancing and breaking the ideas behind uh, breaking properly from mm-hmm. a physics perspective and um, a lot more to present. So it probably won't be the end of the book and uh, we'll have more information. On, we'll be way too technical about, you know, the correct way to break. And actually, this is how you do it. Why, why break? It just slows you down. Yeah, yeah that's the other thing. Do track and then... Uh, don't, don't have to worry about it. Yeah, you one, just... one less thing to think about. <laughs> pedal harder. Yep. So uh, I don't have anything else. Todd, you have anything? Nothing Nothing beyond that. Although we might have to start having uh, trivia facts at the end, a little quizzes just to see, see, see who's on top asleep. of their, their cycling facts here. Sure. Uh, well, if you if you enjoy our episodes or enjoy listening to the podcast, please go over to wherever you download our podcast. Leave it, leave us a review, leave us feedback. We definitely appreciate that and do take it into consideration as we're making uh, future episodes. And uh, I guess I have my my usual parting wisdom here, which is until next time, keep the other side down. And thanks for listening. <laughs>